Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello there and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. Now, the actual proper schedule hasn't started yet, but until we get to actual Monday, in other words, the 22nd, so the five-year anniversary since this podcast officially began its proper episodic series, I decided to churn out a few of these kind of unique, unusual episodes, if you like, to kind of keep us going until then, because it's a party and I don't want there to be silence when the party's on. In line with this idea, I came up with a kind of plan for a project that might or might not work, depending on the mood you're in or how much you like the sound of my voice. You might have realised, or perhaps you haven't realised because you've got more important things to think about, that the Franco-Prussian War wasn't actually the very first episode I did. No, that honour falls to the Bannockburn episode that I did for the History of England as a kind of guest episode. I then released that episode on Bannockburn as 0.5 on the podcast feed, And it kind of sucks, but it was five years ago and I was kind of just finding my feet and all that kind of thing. But I haven't listened to it in about five years. I have this, like, idea that it's just so terrible that I don't want to go anywhere near it. So I thought it might be funny, in a way, for me to kind of provide a running commentary on it. I don't know. I've never done anything like this before, so it might not work. If it doesn't, then I guess I just won't release this episode, so the fact that you're listening to this now means that I did decide it was good enough for your guys' ears. But yeah, it's just a kind of a fun exercise. You might get something out of it, you might not, but I thought it was a funny way to kind of make light of the fact that I've come a very long way, and I've gone from, like, not really knowing what editing was, or what music I was going to use, or what I was going to sound like at all, to kind of actually being a podcaster who kind of, well, at least knows how to podcast. I don't know how else to put it. I'm not as terrible as I used to be, and I think we can all be thankful for that. So yeah, I kind of just going to start it. The idea is the old Bannockburn episode will run in the background, and my kind of comments will go over it. It'll be as close to the mark as I've possibly managed to get it, because I kind of did some editing triggery, and hopefully it should all work out fine, but Do let me know what you think through the usual channels. It's just a fun exercise, really. Don't take it too seriously. And yeah, this is kind of going to kick us off. We've got two more episodes to come after this, and I'm not going to tell you what they are, but Monday's the official starting point of this remastered special. So yeah, thanks for joining me, guys. And I'll be talking to you very soon. Okay, so let's... Let's do this, guys. I don't really know how this is going to go, but I'm going to press play and let's see how five years old Zach, or how Zach five years ago, rather, not 
five-year-old Zach. Let's see how he got on with Bannockburn. This will be very interesting. I have honestly, I have not heard this in at least four years, maybe even four and a half. I don't know. I don't think I ever re-listened to it because I was embarrassed even five years ago. So yeah, that should build a pretty accurate picture from where I'm coming from. Whew, so let's have a look. One, two, three, and play. Wow. <laughs> It's the pilfering of Civ Four. Anyone who is thoroughly Whoa. acquainted with the evils of war that can thoroughly understand the profitable way of carrying it on. Sun Tzu, the art of war. Sun Tzu. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, episode zero point five. Zero point five. Because this episode, in case you didn't know, is just the same episode that I submitted to David to play for the history of England. Who's if David? You've heard oh that yeah. Episode before, and there isn't much new info here for you. Oh yeah, great. To Tell them to go away. So that it showed up in my podcast feed. But you should I know that like it was I'm twelve first. So if you haven't heard of that podcast and you just stumbled here almost by accident, then go check that podcast out. Oh yeah, that's fair enough. Okay. So with that being said, if this is your first time listening, then welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Yay, that's nice. If you want to know more about this podcast, you should listen to the introduction podcast I released. That's also or true, yeah. Email at wdfpodcast at hotmail.com. What's with that's the pause? wdfpodcast oh. at hotmail.com. <laughs> yeah, also, I, I was very proud of that email Facebook address. group and page under the same name. Yeah, I set up a group Please at the start. Please subscribe on iTunes. It didn't go very well. And say really nice things about me. Thanks. Mm. Okay. Yeah, thanks. No, so I didn't have I didn't have thanks at this stage. That's crazy. Oh, I must have put that in later on. That's fine. When King Alexander II died in twelve, ah, the good old background noise. His daughter Margaret was left as the sole heir to the throne of Scotland. Despite being merely four years old, marriage arrangements were made with the son of King Edward I to the then five-year-old Edward II. I sound so weird. I just sound so weird. This was a disaster for Scotland. What's with all the mouth noises? Did I really make that much mouth noises? Would all but guarantee civil war. The two leading competitors for the Scottish crown were Robert the Bruce, 5th Lord of Annandale, grandfather of the future... Show some enthusiasm, Zach. Jeepers. And John Balliol, Lord of Galloway. However, there were 13 claimants in total, so in their efforts to preserve peace within Scotland... The Guardians of Scotland invited the aforementioned King Edward I to arbitrate. So there's two Robert the Bruce's? They did this because of Edward's reputation as a ah, great number 13. which had come out of Edward's diplomatic efforts, including arbitrating the peace treaty between France and Aragon, which had garnered him great international acclaim. Of course, it's not like the Guardians knew that this was the same Edward who had become known as the Hammer of the Scots. They were simply trying to sort out their own dynastic struggles, and hope that the influence of the power I think I was very fond of the word garnered at this time. Of whoever emerged as the clear king of Scotland. I but sound so nervous. Know, Edward had other ideas. Edward had other ideas. <laughs> so Edward agreed to meet the guardians at Norham in 1291, just on the border of Scotland and England. But before the process got underway... Whoa, Edward that's great editing right there. As Lord Paramount before the process got underway... Yeah. Have I gotten any better with editing since then? I hope so, anyway. And during the meeting, Edward had his army standing by, thus forcing the Scots to agree. 
Well, they didn't have to agree. He gave the claimants three weeks to agree to his terms. With no king, no Scots army ready, and King Edward's army at hand, the Scots had no choice. The claimants to the crown acknowledged Edward as their Lord Paramount and accepted his arbitration. Their decision ah. was also influenced in part by the fact that most of the claimants had large estates in England and would have surely lost them if they had defied the English king. In what became known as the Great Cause, Edward reviewed cases put forward by the claimants from May to August 1291 at Berwick, until only a few claimants... Berwick, Berwick, I am so sorry, British people, like still just Berwick. The king, Robert the Bruce's grandfather, remained. However, I still can't believe there was John two Bruce's. ...who was elected King of the Scots on November 17th, 1292, and as he moved to pay homage to King Edward at Newcastle on December homage. 26th... That's homage. Who pays homage? regarded Scotland not as an equal, but as a vassal. This was confirmed when in 1294 he summoned Balliol before him and told him that he had until September 1st of that year to provide troops and support for England's coming war with France. Well, that's a bit excessive, yeah. However, instead of supplying troops to fight in France... Balliol sent a diplomacy mission. No way. His aim was to re-establish the old alliance between Scotland and France. Yeah, that makes sense. Such a move would surely guarantee war with England, but Balliol and his Scottish subjects could take no more of Edward's rule. They chafed under his constant demands, and they resented his flagrant disregard of Scottish sovereignty. Ooh. In 1296, Scottish moves across the border gave Edward the excuse he needed to invade. Thus, what we now know as the first Scottish War of Independence had begun. Oh, that's interesting. Well, Shady Mac obviously st- still had not mastered the art of, of turning things down. No wonder you all complained so much. I'm sorry. I didn't realize, like, that is, like, seriously disruptive. Anyway, yeah, I, I understand what you were all, what you all meant by now with the whole horn blowing your ears off. I still like that war horn, pilfered as it was from... Civilization 4, which is the best Civilization game of all time, I don't care what you say. As was the Chinese diplomacy music at the start. But I really like that horn. Jeepers, that was... Yeah, that, that's uh, pretty embarrassing. But anyway, let's keep going. Edward's initial invasion of Scotland was a fantastic success. He sacked There's Berwick, Berwick again. And forced many Scottish nobles to capitulate. Years of continental war had ensured that Edward's army was both the best trained and best yeah, equipped in Europe. that could be true. As a fighting force, it had no equal, and thus it bulldozed the brave but hopelessly outmatched Scottish rebels. The Scots were utterly routed at the Battle of Dunbar in March 1296. John Balliol abdicated and was locked up in the tower, and the Scottish Stone of Destiny was taken Which, to incidentally, the Scottish Stone of Scone, as they call it, that was... Stolen by the Scots from Ireland, I'll have you know. The Hill of Tara where they used to crown Irish kings, Irish high kings. So yeah, there's a bit of... I'm not sure if I actually go into that, but we'll soon see. But yeah. Which, on a small side note, oh, yeah. <laughs> is believed to have its origins in Ireland. <laughs> there we go. See, told you now. Because who says I can't talk up my own country? Why would I want also, to talk up my own on country? on a completely unrelated side note. Oh no. For those of you who may not have had the pleasure of studying that period in history... Scotland gets its name from the Scotty, an Irish tribe who invaded and settled in northern Britain during and after the final days of Roman occupation. I was so just Irish full of knowledge back aside. then. Where was I? Ah, yes. <laughs> it sounds like I was genuinely asking where I was. I was so bad at like acting, asking reflective kind of questions 
that whenever I said anything rhetorical like that, I read it from the script. You bet you can't guess I was reading a script. So it literally just sounded like I was asking you a genuine question, where was I? Rather than being like, now where was I? So, yeah, wow. <laughs> anyway, let's keep going. So Edward then convened a parliament at Berwick, again. where the Scottish nobles paid homage so to him as King of England. It seemed now that Scotland had been all but conquered. It is here that the most famous of rebels begin to emerge. Oh, of course, William good old Wallace. This podcast does not intend to decipher the myths what are myths? behind the man, but his impact, even in a closed sense, is undeniable. With the reinvigorated morale under Wallace and his contemporary rebel leader, Andrew de Murray, the rebels began revolting across Scotland. In response, Edward sent an army north to crush the Scots, as he had done so many times before. What follows is the battle that made Wallace's name, Stirling Bridge. The battle was the first major, crucial victory for the Scots, giving credibility to their cause and enraging Edward to no end. As far as Edward and most of England were concerned, though, Wallace had broken the code of chivalry by attacking the English in a dishonourable way. He had not allowed the English army to line up in formation. Big deal, Edward. Get over yourself. He attempted to pour through the bottleneck across the bridge. With only one way through and marshes on both sides of the bridge, the smaller Scottish army used the land to their advantage, almost like Thermopylae in some respects. Wallace had reached the pinnacle of his status, being named sole guardian of Scotland in the following weeks. Wallace now turned his attention towards England itself, moving to avenge now on England what damage Edward had wrought on Scotland Seems in fair. his early years. He burned and pillaged ah. many English towns, massacring numerous civilians and killing any English men he came across. The less known facts of Wallace's life was that he was not merely a patriot, military genius, or man. Wonder, like, why don't you just ask me my true opinions on the man whose whose basic profile I have essentially taken from Braveheart, even though I don't say so. I'm pretty sure I was not well-versed in Scottish history at that stage, anyway. But he was also a man of his day, which meant that the customary traditions of medieval war were employed by him as much as the English. Wallace hated the English as much as the English hated him. It is not surprising that both sides acted in the way that they did. What was that I said about not getting bogged down about... I don't know, Zach. What was it that you said? I don't remember you saying that you wouldn't get bogged down in his character. Wow, I couldn't sound more bored. I really do sound so bored. I suppose I'm just nervous because I'm reading off a script. But yeah, I'm like... Ugh, Janie Mac. Oops. Was that an oops? Oops. What kind of oops was that? (laughs) Wow, okay, sorry, sorry. Keep going. But where does Braveheart come into all of this? (sighs) I don't want to dwell too long on the subject. Simply because I really do want to focus on the historical events. You mean Braveheart didn't actually happen? But at the same time, I just can't resist talking at least a small bit about the film. The depictions of the battles are undeniably epic. That goes without saying. But its depiction of Robert the Bruce as a turncoat in the Battle of Falkirk was absolutely false. I sound actually a bit angry when I was talking about that. It's good to know I can bring some emotion into my voice for a change. What a relief. Just in case you didn't think I could feel anything. Apparently I could be angry that Robert the Bruce was the victim of a campaign of character assassination that is a battle which we will look at a bit later additionally braveheart was in fact the name given to robert the bruce not william oh Wallace. okay that's interesting why didn't they just make it about robert the bruce anyway why did, like robert the bruce is a way better name anyway than william wallace like 
You're being the something. You're being the Bruce. Actually, Robert the Bruce is suspected of dying of leprosy, which I learned because I'm a researcher for the leprosy mission and I had to find people in history who uh, suffered from leprosy and were in important situations. So yeah, he's he's believed to have died from leprosy or a severe form of early syphilis, but they often conflated the two. And some people even thought later on in, in like the 1800s that syphilis led to leprosy in some cases but they do think that he died from leprosy i think they examined his skeleton or something but yeah let's let's keep going i have always found it interesting that the film chose to document wallace's life a man about whom we know very little for example we don't even know what he looked like instead of documenting so at least zach thinks the same way now as he did five years ago i mean i was asking myself the same question what's the big deal with william wallace just because he won a few battles surely robert the bruce is more important anyway I hope I haven't ruined the film for you too much. Yeah, I don't think I could ruin anything for you unless I could ruin my own podcast for you. As if you listened to 20-year-old Zach talking about Bannockburn and you're like, well, I guess I can't enjoy Bannockburn now. I guess I can't enjoy Braveheart now. I guess William Wallace is ruined for me as a character now. Well, thanks a lot, Zach. How much power did I think I had back then? Janie Mack. But on a final note, you know that last bit of the film where Robert the Bruce leads his men into battle just as the credits are about to roll? Well, that battle is probably the most important battle in Scotland history. Sorry about that, Mel. Sorry about that, Mel. Who's... Oh, Mel Gibson. Wow, I was too clever. <laughs> I was too clever for myself now. How about that? That's interesting. Yeah, I don't. I still don't understand why Bannockburn was like a footnote of the film when it was arguably the most important battle during this period. But yeah, there you go, I suppose. Back to reality, though. And Edward was not interested in Wallace's potential movie deals. He endeavoured to lead the English army himself and destroy Wallace once and for all. Because of this, Stirling Bridge was a victory that Wallace would not be able to savour for long, as it was overshadowed by his defeat under Edward's personally-led army in 1298 at the Battle of Falkirk. The Scottish spear units had formed into the new Skiltrum. Skiltrum. Pretty sure it's Skiltrum, not Skiltrum. And this had rendered them virtually impregnable against cavalry, as the English tried and failed many times the to English break their formations. But they are immensely vulnerable to missile attack, which the longbows provided with devastating efficiency. The Scots' fate was sealed on the battlefield by the emergence of the English longbow as an effective weapon, and by the desertion of the Scottish nobles, who were in effect Wallace's only cavalry. Robert the Bruce was not among these nobles, though. He was not even present on the battlefield. The defeat of the Scots army at Falkirk seemed to undo the work Wallace had done, both in Scotland I and I mean, why did they try to blacken Robert the Bruce's name? I still don't understand that. It's such a weird way to create a movie. I don't know if any of you guys have watched History Buffs. It's the YouTube channel by Nick Hodgins. He basically looks at historical movies and assesses their accuracy. He's not a big fan of, of Mel Gibson's impact on historical movies, let's just say, but I can understand why when I look back at this kind of example and see just how completely warped that they've made it like why on earth did they make robert the bruce turn into a traitor and william wallace be like the savior of scotland when neither men were those things it seems like a really weird thing to do surely the story itself is more interesting to tell and surely the battle of bannockburn is a more triumphant story to tell than someone yelling freedom while getting their stomach cut open but i digress let's keep going with it in solidifying his power and scotland's status as a separate kingdom wallace fled into hiding and the tide turned in favour of Edward once more. Wallace was succeeded as guardian by the joint rule of John Common and Robert the Bruce. Yes, that Robert the Bruce. 
Which Robert the Bruce? His grandfather or the actual Robert the Bruce? I'm, I'm confused, so you guys must have been confused. Leading to a truce in 1302. In 1303 to 1304, Stirling Castle, the last Scottish ah, Scotland, was captured by England. Then, in 1305, Wallace's infamous execution was carried out as he was hung, drawn, and... Nasty way to go, as they say in Hot Fuzz. ...that he shouted, Freedom! I couldn't just say freedom. I had to actually say freedom. Just in case you guys weren't sure of what scene I was referring to. Nice. Nice job, Zach. Nice job. Almost as good as the Russian accents. Considering that he would probably have been unconscious by the time he was drawn and quartered. Or like in little bits. So I'll try and stop ruining the movie for you now. So, with Scottish resistance all but defeated and their great leader killed, it seemed as though Scotland would lay down for Edward and it would finally accept its status as a vassal. Maybe they just wanted to be part of the vassal state, you know, that blog I have, wink, wdfpodcast.com forward slash the vassal state. Go and check that out. Any mention of vassal states gets me excited now. But infuriatingly for Edward, this would not be the case. For while he would live to see Wallace's execution, which he watched with relish, he would not... What flavour relish? Was he eating a sandwich? Edward Was he, like, just well eating relish with a spoon? I mean, that's not very much information. the qualities necessary for a king during wartime. Edward would have looked at his son and worried for England's future. I don't think he would have. As we now know, his fears concerning Edward II were well-founded. In February of 1306, the two guardians of Scotland, Robert the Bruce and John Common, clashed at Dumfries. Robert the Bruce and John Common rarely saw eye-to-eye on Anglo-Scottish issues, especially since Common favoured peace with England and believed that if submission for the moment meant peace then that was the course Scotland should I mean, follow. you can't at all hear me turning pages or swallowing my saliva in the background, can you? I just I find it amazing you guys stuck with me all this time, really. Thank you very much for putting up with me through these teething problem stages. It is important to stress that Cowan was not alone in this view. Many people believe that Scotland could simply wait, bide its time until England was preoccupied. How did I, and then make how did I manage to say preoccupied wrong? There was no shame in admitting defeat to the strongest state in medieval Europe. Oh, hold on a minute now. Was England the strongest state in medieval Europe? I mean, medieval Europe is 800s to 1300s. You're telling me that the Ottomans weren't stronger? Or France wasn't stronger when it was like not being ripped apart by civil war? Or Castile wasn't stronger? Good old sweeping generalization, Zach. You'd swear you never did history at all. Dear, oh dear. Only to rise again in the future. But John Common was killed in the quarrel. That was handy. Robert as the sole guardian and de facto ruler of Scotland. Scotland's future would now follow Robert's views that Scotland must resist at all costs, to the end if necessary. Besides, Robert would reason, England was at war with France. Now is as good a time as any to not stop fighting. Ah, England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. Apparently also Scotland's opportunity too. Ah, seeing a common trend here. First they steal our stone, then they steal our catchphrase. Although I suppose they were using it before we were. Still, they stole our stone. Robert then began to style himself in the same fashion as Wallace had done years before. And Scotland began to rally to his cause. However, Robert was defeated in the subsequent campaign he set in motion. Good job, Robert. He an outlaw from a Scotland thoroughly controlled by England. Then, the greatest enemy of Scotland, King Edward I, Longshanks and the Hammer of the Scots, died in July... 1307. July. Nice job. Changed dramatically. Robert the Bruce returned to Scotland among jubilant crowds, 
who are encouraged with the news of Edward's death and clamoring for a new campaign. Wow, I mean, like, just because one guy died, everything's okay now? Just, the English are still all occupying the country. How does that work? It's not like the English all left just because Edward died. Well, I'm pretty sure they didn't all leave because Edward died anyway. Seems a bit, like, over-optimistic. Yay, the king's dead. Now we can have our country back. It doesn't quite work that way. Or does it? Robert would give them what they wanted. In this new campaign season, though, it was clear that the situation had changed. The Scottish army, who had once been a band of peasant farmers and unruly rebels, were now replaced by a professional, disciplined force. Where did they get the men from? Years of war against the English had given them valuable experience, and had also opened Scottish eyes to their style of fighting. Why are they not all dead? Gradually moulding them into a formidable army, far more capable than they capable. had been before. Okay, I don't know what that means. But it was not going to be easy. England still held practically every stronghold throughout Scotland. Robert would have to dislodge them before victory could be achieved. But Robert was determined. He embarked on a slow but successful guerrilla campaign, undermining the English position and gathering support for his cause. Over these few years, until 1314, Robert had avoided a pitched battle, believing it was too great a risk should they lose, as they had at Falkirk. Even the most famous of victories, the Battle of Bannockburn, which was, by the way, supposed to be the main focus of this episode. Oops. Yeah, you wouldn't know that I like to ramble, would you? You wouldn't know that Zack likes to ramble. I suppose it's a signal of my style to come that I like tangents. I mean, what can I say? I'm a, a fan of tangents and perhaps talking about things that have nothing to really do with the actual episode in question. But setting the scene is fun. Setting the scene's always fun. I wonder how much I'm going to apologise. I don't think I've apologised in this episode yet, so there's still time. Ah. Uh, I've said oops twice, though. (laughs) Almost did not happen, because Robert believed the odds were too greatly stacked against his forces. But in one of those what-if moments... One of those what-if moments chokes on his own saliva. Nice job, Zach. This was obviously before I realised there was a silence button in Audacity. So, yeah, sorry about that, guys. (laughs) Robert did do battle, and Scottish historians and nationalists alike are surely very happy that he did. Well, depends on who you ask. In many ways... The Scottish army's victory at Bannockburn under Robert was similar to Wallace's victory 18 years earlier. There was a larger English army, the Scots were expected to lose, and had you been a betting man at the time, it would have looked at though Scotland was down and out. But then, just like before, the Scots somehow won, the English were left shaking their heads, and the English king decided enough was enough and gave up on Scotland. Wait, what? Well, here's where some things are different. Because King Edward II was in so many ways not at all his father's son. His lack of political... Please tell me he's he's the antithesis of his father, as I used to say. But is this a fair judgment? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We'll revisit this question a bit later on. Great. But having just said that, I don't want to go too far into his character. Edward is just too complex. What, what is with the noise that I make? How do I make those noises with my mouth? It sounds like I choke on my own breathing and also saliva it's really really odd sorry about that guys try to like not have any of those mouth noises anymore but obviously at this early stage i wasn't really interested in cutting them out how did i not think that they would bother people because they re i can't listen to podcasts which have constant mouth noises i'm so aware of them now i would never ever do that or at least i try not to i don't want to say this in case you're like oh there's all those mouth noises in that episode zach like yeah well sorry i can't be perfect i'm only human only human Perhaps a prince, maybe a prince, but still human. And his history demands adequate coverage on a podcast. Because otherwise, well, it just would not be fair on him, even if you don't like him. However, I will say that had Edward I just, the first not like, died, I, I try to make it sound like I'm trying to be fair, but my voice just doesn't convey the fact that I care at all. It, <laughs> it sounds like someone's forcing me to read this. I suppose I was forcing me to read this, but you get what I mean. Sterling Bridge being the obvious exception. And that once he died, the situation under Edward II largely fell apart. How about that? I like using the word I digress even back then. I think I should use digress more. It's a very handy word, especially for someone like me who goes on a lot of needless tangents. Bannockburn was a victory that Scotland so badly needed. It is so important, in fact, that I will now proceed to examine it in detail, since, hey, that was what the whole point of this podcast was. And who am I to ramble on for 15 minutes beforehand? Since, hey, I mean, like, why <laughs> why did I think adding in those things was going to be good? Oh, it's so cringy. I, I thought that I used to cringe for some old episodes, but wow, I don't think I've cringed so much so in 20 minutes of my life. Down the road from Stirling Castle. The same castle English forces had seized around 10 years earlier. The situation at Stirling Castle was interesting because when in spring of 1314, Robert arrived to besiege it with an army, he could make no progress. So he made a deal with the castle's commander, Sir Philip Mowbray, that if the castle was not relieved by June 24th, he would surrender to Robert. There is a key reason that I can see which would warrant such a deal be struck. That's a nice deal. Although Robert was making no progress in the siege now, Mowbray believed that he would eventually, and thought that the best chance for his castle would be to force a battle between the English and Scottish forces. The best way to force a battle would be to pull an English army up from the south to reinforce the castle's position. But Mowbray may not have been confident that they would make it on time. So to ensure that the English army rushed to his rescue, he clearly defined how long he intended to hold out. That sounds very defeatist. arms would win the day, but consoled himself that if they could not reach him on time, then at least Mowbray would not have to suffer a siege or any loss of men, as it was planned to be a peaceful transition. Whatever Mowbray's intentions, the English army raced north to meet Robert's force, during this time, Robert trained his army, moving them away from the immobile Skiltrum formation. Oh, that's a nice change. Fight on the move. 
Additionally, Robert settled on the area where he planned to fight. He chose an area three miles down the road, in what was once a hunting reserve, a place called New Park. New Park. That's the name of my mother's school. I'll have you know. Probably the same New Park as well, I'm sure it is. It's not. Definitely isn't. To understand oh, looks like we're going to have our very first mind map. How about that? Did I even call it a mind map? Let's see. I don't know. Should I bring mind maps back in? I don't really need them anymore because I don't really look at battles in enough detail. But they were they were good while they lasted. I'm sure you'll come across many of them in the episodes to come. But it's, it's funny to listen to myself doing the whole... If you imagine yourself standing at the... Because I still... Like if I'm bad at giving directions... I'm even worse at trying to describe something that I can't even physically see. I can only see like a drawing of it or something. So, yep, but we managed, we managed. Let's see. Imagine that you stand in a wood where the Scottish camp is located and then picture a horseshoe-shaped river which dominates the landscape in front of you. This is the Bannockburn from where the battle gets its name. Okay, so it's named after a river. Cutting straight across the horseshoe horizontally. Then, imagine that. At the top part of this horseshoe, but on the other side of the horizontal cut made by the Falkirk Stirling Road, lies uh, a grassy, what? slightly marshy plain known as the Carse of Stirling. What? To your right, there is a bridge which goes over the Bannockburn, and okay, because yeah. you were so well prepared, you have yeah. dug ditches on both sides of the road leading up to and away from the bridge. Oh, go me. Spears, and you have done this on both sides of the river. Are you still How did with I have time me? to because do that? Last fact will become important later on. How did I manage to have time okay. to do that? So a road is directly in front of you. Stirling Castle is three miles up the road to your left, and a bridge yeah. is a little bit down the road to your right. Okay. There are also marshes dotted around the landscape. Yes, I know. That there are very few places where infantry and, crucially for a Scottish victory, heavy cavalry can effectively maneuver. Okay, that makes sense. I'm ready now. By June twenty second, thirteen fourteen. Bruce was as ready as he would ever be, with about 6,500 skilled troops, as well as 500 cavalry under Sir Robert Keith, to match a formidable English force, numbering about 20,000 men. This English army included seasoned veterans of the Scottish campaigns, such as the Earl of Pembroke, Henry de Beaumont... Henry de Beaumont, come on, Beaumont, very nearly Beaumont? from the battlefield the night before, worrying that his men were outmatched by the English army, and that too much was at stake to risk on a pitched battle which the English had always demonstrated their skills in. But Robert was persuaded to stay and fight by his own commanders, including Thomas Randolph, 1st Earl of Moray, who would command the vanguard of the Scots army in the coming battle, as well as reports from his scouts that morale among the English force was low. Why was it low? Do I explain why it was low? The battlefield they had marched to with a certain sense of unease. Why? The marshes would necessitate locating more reliable ground and sticking to it so that the heavy cavalry could charge effectively. It was clear that the river, the Bannockburn, would have to be crossed, but just how reliable was the ground on the other side? The Falkirk Stirling Road itself would be sturdy, but you could only fit so many cavalry on that at one time. I think this was at the stage when I was still reading from scripts, so that explains why there's a lot of paper noise in the background. I stopped doing that after like episode 4, I think it was, because I was kind of like, oh wait, I can just read off the computer and save like all this paper. I don't know why it never occurred to me before. So, yeah, that's what all the paper noise is. And what of the plane sloping down from the road and meeting the river, the Carse of Stirling? Also, what dastardly things had the Scots hidden in that forest? Spears! No. Of all of these questions, the English would not like any of the answers. On the morning of June 23rd, the English attack began. 
It started when Henry de Bohun, a nephew of the Earl of Hereford, one of the English commanders, charged to attack an unprotected Bruce, believing he had Bruce right in the Bruce. As he was far out in front of his army and not wearing his armour, Henry charged recklessly forward, only to have his head split in half by Robert's Why? arms. Why? What? What? Did he just did he just not fight him or something? Did he just ride up to him and not do anything? That doesn't make any sense. Okay, sorry about the lack of context. Devastated at his loss, the cavalry detachment under his command fled back across the bridge. Robert was chastised by his commanders for putting himself so blatantly in harm's Yeah, rightfully so. Famously, though, Robert is said to have simply replied, I have broken my axe. Oh. Such a remark spirited his <laughs> On dream. his head. And while Robert went to get himself a new axe, the Scots managed to beat back the advance of the Earl of Hereford and Gloucester, appointed to How joint command by Edward, after a quarrel about who would take the lead. This was a compromise that satisfied no one, by the way. The English cavalry were beaten back across the bridge to the right, thanks in part to those large spear pits I told that you to remember so, earlier. sounds so, like, unrealistic that they would have pits full of spears. I can't imagine anyone... Like, is there any other example of battles, like, pits being filled with spears? I can't picture that at all. Maybe I just made it up. I have a feeling I did make that up, because that sounds really ridiculous. It sounds like the kind of thing you come across in, like, a, a video game where you're just like, ooh, fall in the pit of spears kind of thing. Seriously, a pit full of spears. Which the English cavalry only discovered after impaling themselves on gruesomely. Oh, yeah, right, Zach. Because they were forced to such a small gap along the bridge, it meant that the Scots only had to fight some heavy cavalry at once. Okay. Back at St. Ninian's Church, which is halfway along the road that is directly in front of you, so effectively in the middle of the horseshoe then, Thomas Randolph, the first Earl of Moray, was successfully repelling the advance... That's a Moray. Sorry. ...under Robert Clifford and Henry de Beaumont, which had skirted the Scottish position to the east and rode towards Stirling. Bruce had spotted the manoeuvre and ordered Randolph's force to intercept, and the English were met with a line of spears. Nice. This was a sign of things to come for oh, the English. Not a pit of spears. Because they were unsupported by longbows and mounted on rough terrain, they could make no headway against the Scots spear formations, which were by now even more mobile and deadly than they had been at Falkirk. With night drawing near, Edward II made the greatest blunder of the year and probably the biggest mistake of his entire oh dear. when he ordered his army to cross the Bannockburn a bit upstream and to camp for the night on the course of Stirling. You're feeling all depressed and like the battle isn't going your way? Cross a freezing cold river in this armpit of Scotland. That sounds like a great idea. Yeah, nice job, Edward II. That sounds like a pretty big mistake to me as well. This meant that, in the mind map you should still have in your heads... No, I've forgotten it, Zach. Sorry. ...camped at the top of the horseshoe, with nowhere to go but forward, since the river and marshes to their rear bottled them up. That morning, okay. the English readied themselves for battle, and the Scots obliged. Obliged. Ronald McNair Scott, in his book Robert the Bruce, King of Scots... Which seems to be like the only book I have used for this entire thing. Well, actually, no, Braveheart was my source in my videography. Yep, Braveheart. Mel Gibson's a, a, a quality historian, I'll have you know. ...knelt in prayer in full view of the English army. Seeing this... Edward II was reported to have said, Ha! They kneel for mercy. Only for one of his aides to reply, Yea, sir, they kneel for mercy, but from God, not from you. These men will conquer. As if anyone would ever say that to their king. Come on. What? Like Sometimes urban legends are so stupid. As if anyone would ever say that to their king. The only example I can think of that is Louis XIV when he was in, like, really far. He, he put himself in danger in, in a siege and one of his soldiers was like, 
sire is this the place for you or something to that effect and even that sounds ridiculous because people were so like even in the 1600s people were like oh it's the king oh fall all over the place and like majesty oh so as if now someone would be like oh no you're wrong king <laughs> it's just so ridiculous but yeah may- maybe he did but it just sounds like one of those fables that just get passed down through time anyway probably by the scots they stole our stone as okay. the scots then advanced the english attempted in vain to form up in such a confined space amidst this atmosphere of disorder the earl of gloucester charged with his cavalry Wait, do i sound like i'm laughing there in the background that's a bit weird sometimes because i know what i sound like when i have a smile on my face or when i'm trying to not laugh it sounds like i just laughed at a mistake i made there and that i'm trying not to laugh and also reading it out so that's very distracting Sorry again! And led the vanguard against a leading Scots spearman, commanded by Edward Bruce. Gloucester was killed in the forest of Scottish spears, along with some of the other knights. The Scots then reached the English line, engaging them along the entire front. The English army, which was tightly packed and still unable and still to properly uh, form, unable. what was with me? Began to be slaughtered in droves. They began to be slaughtered. They got slaughtered. They didn't be anything. They didn't, like... I want to be slaughtered. They got slaughtered. They didn't have a choice. Come on, Zack. Desperately, in an effort to make use of his longbowmen, Edward allowed some to flank the left side of the Scots. So he had longbowmen. I said earlier on he had no longbowmen. Make up your mind, Zack. And, seeing the threat posed by them, Bruce ordered one of his commanders, Sir Robert Keith, to pursue them with a small detachment of horsemen. And as we all know from Rome Total War, the best way to defeat missile troops is with cavalry. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With the archers routed, cries of press on, press on began to emerge from the Scots army as they sensed the English line was faltering. Wow, I was very good at editing, seriously. I suppose, I mean, I could have, I have done worse. I have left absolute whopper mistakes in certain episodes. I've since learned that simply by zooming in, it's far easier to get rid of those kind of mistakes that cutting off the end of words and then like it leads into one, it just sounds awful. And it's so obvious that you've edited badly. There is a science to it. There is a kind of science to it to make it sound like it hasn't been edited. It's like when my dad cut, like my dad's a gardener. So it's like when he's gardening and he's he's pruning a, a rose bush or something. The whole idea is to make it look like it hasn't been cut. It hasn't been pruned. It just grows this way. And I suppose that's the same idea with podcasts. When you're editing them, no one's really supposed to realize that you've been in there with your editor's brush. Which is why it's funny to break the fourth wall and be like, yo, just sounded really terrible before I made myself sound really smart. But I digress. As the English dead mounted and more men began to waver, these cries turned to, on them, on them, they fail. Such cries alerted the Scottish camp followers who, picking up weapons and banners, moved from out of the Scottish camp in the woods. Why didn't they join the battle earlier on? Were they just sitting around? Seeing these men emerge from the woods in front of them further up the hill, would have seemed to the English like a second reserve force of Scots, and they lost all hope. With his army crumbling around him, Edward fled the battle before it was fully over, adding to the panic and ensuing chaos. Men who did not flee were trampled or drowned in the following rout. Robert the Bruce had clearly won the day, and it had been an utterly devastating defeat for England. As Edward II retreated to Dunbar Castle and then sailed south to England, How did he get away? viewed his losses. Records vary from 4,000 to 11,000, and must have known that his barons were already developing plans to be rid of him. Soon, Edward would have not just his father's legacy to worry about, but his own safety within his own kingdom. 
he would never return to Scotland. Ah. Peace and conclusion. Wow. <laughs> what? What? Oh, yeah, this was at the stage I used to read out peace and... Con- oh, yeah. And it was the original plan for this podcast. It would be to, like, split it up into kind of, like, audio chapters. I didn't know how to do that, like, audiobooks. Like, as in, I didn't know how to change from one chapter to the next, so I thought I'd split it up, like, myself. I don't know how I thought this would help. By every time it was the peace, I'd say that it was the peace and conclusion. And when it was the outbreak of war, I was supposed to say the outbreak of war. I was supposed to do that with background as well, but for some reason I didn't. And I think I actually left this in by mistake, because I don't have the other two parts. It's supposed to be background, outbreak of hostilities, and then peace and conclusion, but only peace and conclusions here for some reason, so... I don't know. Anyway. The victory spelt disaster for Edward, but solidified Robert's position as King of Scotland. In the years that followed... England's focus shifted to France and away from Scotland. King Robert of Scotland now opened a second front of the war in Ireland, which in itself is a period in history which I believe deserves its own podcast. Well, you should have covered that instead, Zach. King gained recognition of Scottish sovereignty, including the Pope, who in 1320 approved the Declaration of Arbroath, establishing Scotland as a sovereign, internationally recognised, and separate political entity. Yeah, okay, sure. Bannockburn was the last pitched battle of the War of Scottish Independence, and completely turned Edward's focus away from the land in the north that his father had tried in vain to completely subdue, and which he himself had just abandoned. One of Edward II's aides at this time, Robert Le Messager, was arrested (laughs) for saying that it was no wonder the king couldn't win a battle referring to Bannockburn, because he spent the time when he should have been hearing mass in idling, ditching, digging, and other improper occupations. So he was too busy digging a hole when he should have been in church, and that's why he lost. Surely digging a hole is more, well, more practically useful when you're on the field and would surely contribute more to the defeat of the enemy. I mean, if the English had dug their own holes, maybe they could have filled them with spears as well, like the Scottish supposedly did. Then maybe the battle would have turned out differently. As Edward's unpopularity grew, he became a recluse. On the day Edward agreed to Parliament's decision to oppose him, the 20th of January 1327, a delegation sent to him at Kenilworth Castle revealed the reasons why his subjects had rejected his rule. The second reason, which began, he has not been willing to listen to good counsel, also included the interesting accusation that he has always given himself up to unseemly works and occupations. Oh, no. Edward was killed later that year, some say by his wife Isabel. In his place, the 17-year-old King Edward III was forced to sign a peace treaty on May 1st, 1328, when Robert invaded England. This treaty, known as the Treaty of Edinburgh Northampton, brought to an end the 32-year war between Scotland and England. 32 years! I thought the 1916 Rising was bad. Jeepers, that only lasted a month. If even, by the, t- by the time the whole ordeal was over. I mean, 32 years. Well, I suppose, yeah. And I just covered it in half an hour. How about that? The treaty gave England's official recognition to Scottish sovereignty and Robert's role as Scotland's monarch. In short, this was a landmark moment in Scotland's yeah, history. Yeah, it really was. Although, incredibly, the Second War of Scottish Independence would break out just four years later oh. in 1332. Why? But that is a story for another day. No, it's not. I'm never covering that. Before I go, I'd like to thank my sources, some of which are so helpful they deserve to be known. Anyone with even remote interest in Edward II should check out Catherine Warner's blog, as she has tons of info there all about him. 
You can find her at edwardthesecond.blogspot.com. Okay. Ah, Blogspot. That's where the Blogspot link... Like, that's where I saw Blogspot, because I didn't know what blogs were back then. So when I saw someone using one, I think... I don't think I got in contact with her, but I think I saw what she did, and I was like, hey, maybe I can do this. And then I tried to, like, emulate her. And obviously, I'm not using blogspot.ie anymore. I'm using the vassal state instead, as, of course, we all know, but... Yeah, that's interesting. That ties in a lot of things together. So this is kind of like the founding stages of BeFit right here. Ah, very interesting. Last, but certainly not least, I'd like to thank you, the listener. However you are feeling about me right now... <laughs> Probably a bit terrible. <laughs> because you have just listened to Zach Twomley's first ever podcast. So if Zach Twomley thanks Zach Twomley for listening to Zach Twomley five years into the future, does that mean... Is that like Zachception, or what do we even call that? I mean, we could call it a Zach attack, but it's not really an attack. It's more like a, I mean, yeah, I suppose it is a, I mean, we're Zach attacking the laws of history, really. Who, like, I didn't imagine when I was recording this, that in the future, I'd listen to myself, and listen to myself, thanking myself for listening to myself. How about that? That, that is definitely some kind of inception. I don't know if it's, maybe it's Zachception, maybe it's Podception. Answers on the postcard, please. To combine my two loves of history and politics into a podcast. So every week, I plan on releasing a podcast covering the background to, build up to. Thanks again, guys. What? What? Build up. Back. Hold on. Covering the build up to, background to. Bye. <laughs> wow. People must have been so confused when they listened to that. I must have cut that off. Obviously, cut that off by mistake because I was actually trying to formulate a sentence there. And I don't think I just stopped talking and then thought, that's grand. I'm pretty sure that I actually said it and cut it out. Yeah. Wow. That's terrible. <laughs> Everyone listening to that must have been like, no way in hell, listen to that podcast. He doesn't even know what he's doing. And there is, yeah, that's Elizabeth. That's Elizabeth in diplomacy. Good old pilfering of the civilization for diplomatic music. <laughs> nice. Bam, 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 I am actually going to talk after this, don't worry. Yeah, wow. Well, what do we think of that? I think that was interesting. In many ways, it's kind of horrifying because, wow, I mean, some parts of that, like, the whole, I mean, two, two major things. One, obviously, it's horrendously badly edited because I didn't really know what I was doing with Audacity. And the other thing is my tone, my, my tone of voice. Because I was so nervous, it just, literally, I'm reading off a script and I focused on reading it and not messing up, which obviously didn't exactly work. But I mean, I wasn't putting any direct effort into pronouncing things right or anything like that. So, wow. It's nice to know that I have come a long way. And actually, do you know what? As bad as I thought it was going to be, it wasn't as bad as I expected it to be. So that's something. I mean, it's still pretty awful and... That's why it's fair enough to make fun of it. I was honestly, like, I cringed out of my skin an awful lot, and I'm still kind of twitching with cringiness now, but it could have been far worse in my head. That was the worst thing I ever committed to audio and released to the public. And in a sense, it, it was, but it wasn't as bad as I expected. So I'm I'm kind of happy with it. I mean, I'm happy that I'll never have to do this again, because... I'm just happy I'm in one piece, really. And I'm happy that you guys stuck with the podcast after that. That, I think, that above all needs to be emphasized. The fact that even though I released that travesty into the public sphere, you people were kind of like, yeah, you know, it's not great, but sure he'll get better in the future. 
thank you for thinking that. Thank you for sticking with me and thank you for sticking with the podcast. And I think that's what this remastered project is all about. It's about not necessarily providing a running commentary on the old episodes because I'm not going to do that. This is the only one of those I'm doing, just so you know. But like a trip down memory lane and reminding ourselves just through passing references how far we've come, how our structure has changed, how our focus has changed and how... Well, we don't feel the need to squash everything into an hour episode and do our very best with it. I mean, that's the benefits, really, of being five years on. You learn from your mistakes. And I'd like to think that having listened to the very first full episode that I ever did, I have learned an awful lot. And I also really have to thank you guys an awful lot for everything you've done in the meantime. Five years ago, I would not have been able to believe that I'd be doing something like this. I mean, in a sense, I really wanted to do podcasting, but it was also done sort of on a whim because I was never one of those people who planned ahead enough to think, oh, I should make loads of episodes so that I'm well prepared. Nope. (laughs) It was kind of the case. I'll make an episode, I record it, I edit it, and then I release it, and then I start the next one, and hopefully it only gets done in a week, and hopefully I don't get too distracted. It helped, of course, that I didn't have an actual job. I mean, I was only 20 years old, and it was just coming into the summer of in between first and second year in college, so that was nice. And actually, I still look back fondly on my summer break in between first and second year because, well, it was just so nice to just be able to focus on the podcast. Those were the days before I was having a a barista job in Costa and basically using up all my time there. So, yeah, it was a nice time. It was a nice time in Zach's life and a good place for us to start from. We've grounded ourselves pretty well now in the old version of Zach and the old version of When Diplomacy Fails. And even though apparently this podcast doesn't really have a actual subject matter, it just covers the background to, build up to, and then cuts out. I promise you guys, this podcast does have substance, it does do genuine things, and it does have a purpose. And the purpose is to make history thrive. And I really hope you guys will stick around for this remastered special which officially starts on Monday, the 22nd of May, 2017. But hey, there's two more episodes to come before that, so I hope you'll listen to them as well. Thanks very much for sticking around, guys. Thanks so much for sticking around, in fact. And I will see you all very soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 